All right, everybody, welcome to the green room here for Disrupt TV. Uh, we've discovered that Elon Musk is an alien and more importantly, don't eat sugar. Anyways, just kidding. Um, <laughs> we're gonna do a quick introduction of our Ooh. guests. <laughs> and we'll do them in reverse order of appearance. So I'm Ray Wong with, uh, I'm Ray Wong, one of the co-hosts and co-founders of Disrupt TV here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. And of course, our amazing producer, L in the middle, of course. So um, Mara, where are we calling in from? What are we talking about today? Do you have something new to share with us? I'm calling from New York City. Um, nothing really new is the usual human truth of how important love is in our lives. <laughs> uh, I wrote a book about this, the human side of innovation, the power of people in love with people. And I would love to talk about love today. All right. Hey, love's in the air. James, where are we calling in from? <laughs> uh, calling in from Northern Georgia. In, in, in an undisclosed bunker. <laughs> what have you done? From New York. <laughs> are there vineyards near where you are? <laughs> I don't know. I don't leave this house. I, I, like I, I was saying this earlier, but I literally, if I were to walk 50 feet away, I have no idea what it looks like. So I just don't leave. That's awesome. I, I like the pandemic today? lifestyle. I, I'm thinking we should have a permanent pandemic. Just... <laughs> Just to keep everybody indoors. Without the virus. A permanent pandemic without the virus. Without the yeah. virus. I don't want the virus, but I want to be by myself and, and order delivery all the time. We live in an amazing world where I can watch a, you know, a movie that cost a billion dollars to make on my big screen TV anytime I want. And I could have Wolfgang Puck cook something and have it delivered to me. And I just never have to leave. Like, it's amazing. We are emperors in this world right now. <laughs> Calling live from a bunker somewhere in north northern Georgia. All right. Cool. Well, hey, Elle, it's up to you. We'll start the show, and uh, we'll kick it off. All right. Three, two, one. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live, and we'll do our best to answer. It's my uh, pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's a best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving. Great book. <laughs> In a World of Digital Giants. You see him every every day, almost every day on TV, on television, business, technology, news, on Fox Business, on Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. 
Hey, thanks a lot. Here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world are paying attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets when he's not hosting, keynoting places like the Vatican, somewhere in some Time Magazine location, or leading events at Salesforce. You can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But as you know, it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have back to kick it off today? I can't believe you remember the Vatican. Uh, our, one of our I favorite. Hear, I want to hear about what does it mean to keynote the Vatican? I, I, I hosted the first ever uh, university hackathon at the Vatican. Uh, so I was there at St. Peter's Basilica for five days, 60 universities, 120 students. And we had these amazing uh, young men and women building innovative solutions. And it was a hackathon hosted by the Pope and his Cardinals. Yeah, that would have been so cool if the Pope was like in one of the competing teams, yeah, building awesome. a robot. Yeah, it's amazing how he could magically turn things into unicorn companies. Anyway, our, one of our favorite guests, James Altucher, founder of the James Altucher Show podcast, is here. Uh, he, James has started, uh, founded, co-founded more than 20 companies and advises over 30 some odd companies. He's published 20 books. He contributes to every major media publication, Wall Street Journal, TechCrunch, all of those. Uh, at one point though, I don't know why I'm bringing this up, uh, James lost everything. Uh, in a matter of months, his bank account went from about $15 million to 143 bucks. Uh, which is just Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't yeah, normally do yeah. this. We have a panic yes. attack in the middle of this show. Yeah. But during this hardship period, he realized that today's standard view of success comes with conditions and only way to be truly successful and fulfilled is to choose yourself and skip the line. He's got a powerful TEDx talk about all of this. Now he's a best-selling author, successful entrepreneur, angel investor. His podcast, I just mentioned, over 40 million downloads. Ray, what are we doing? You and I got to step I don't up. No, we're in the wrong business, I think. <laughs> we got to learn from James we're here. Really gotta, we totally should just spend the whole time talking about how to have an ex exceptional podcast, which, by the way, if you look, follow James and his Twitter feed, he actually talks about how to create a successful podcast. Uh, so I'm going to be reading it again and again. He's a national chess master with an ELO rating of 2204. Uh, uh, you know, at 2,400 and above, I believe, is the senior master. There are only like four active players that have 2,800. Magnus Carlsen's got the highest, 2,882. So 22. Uh, and by, by the way, this is a 2012 number. So he may be even higher now. I don't know. I, no. I need it. Okay, Here, okay. Here's the thing. <laughs> I'm lower now because here's the thing. And this is interesting. I took a 25-year break from tournaments to oh. do business and stuff like that. And then just in this past year, I said to myself, okay, I'm going to start playing again and I'm going to get better than I ever was before. And oh, everyone wow. told me, you're too old, you're delusional, it's, oh. you have to be young and all the training methods are different, all the, you know, all the kids now are, are, are great. And I said, no way, I'm going I'm to prove that you could be an adult, you could, you could return to your passions, your, your initial loves, and you could be better than ever. And I'm kind of documenting the process. I've talked to I've talked to that. neuroscientists, sports psychologists, chess coaches, and grandmasters. Played a match against Magnus Carlsen's dad, actually, and uh, <laughs> just because I and then I wanted to talk to him. How did Magnus do it? And it is hard. It, age does make a difference, I think. Although you know, my chess coach says no, and and everybody, a lot of people say no, but 
Age makes a difference. Is 2400, which is U.S. Chess Federation for Chess Master, Senior Master, is that is that Are possible? You, is it is a Grandmaster? Is that what that is? 2400? No, no. A Grandmaster would be more like 25, 2600. Yeah. Uh, that would probably be out of my reach. But 2400 is within reach. Ah. I will say, though, I am lower now than I was because what happens is when you're when you're over 40 or over 50, you're not – and this you, you see this in the areas like science or math. You're not as good at calculating things in your head, and, and your memory is not as good. And these are two critical components of chess skill. But what does get better is pattern recognition, so-called mm -hmm. wisdom. But those are not skills I needed to learn when I was younger because I was so good at the other stuff. So now mm -hmm. I'm kind of starting from scratch at, at chess wisdom and – I'm learning a lot. I know more than I've ever known before, but competitively, it's very difficult against these kids that are just like so sharp. And by did you did you watch Queen's Gambit? Did you watch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a great book also by Walter Tevis, who wrote The Hustler. He's very good at writing oh! about subcultures. Yeah, he's the hustler. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. I didn't know that. Go ahead. Wow. My 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 one friend who I who's in Las Vegas, Elliot Liu, um, actually held Alex uh, Yemelinsky to a draw. And Gregory oh. Kite enough to draw as well, which oh, is very interesting. Two very strong grandmasters. And then the other day, you're gonna laugh. I was at a house party with Nazi, uh, the current, uh, the one of the chess champ oh. grandmasters, female grandmasters. Yeah, so, she's a former so, U.S. Women's Champion, I think. So next time you're in Las Vegas, come. I, I know exactly where they are. We can connect them. Yeah. Have we heard you're gonna have to bring him to James' home in Atlanta. Oh yeah, no, we'll, we'll bring you to somewhere in Atlanta. We'll you know, I, Atlanta. I really don't leave my house. So every Tuesday night, I hold a tournament in my house, just so I can get games in. I just make sure everyone comes here. Awesome. <laughs> Sorry, the introduction just went into the. Anyway, follow James on Twitter. The last thing I wanted to say, because he's got a very active, very rich Twitter feed at J L T C H E R. A L T U C H E R. Ray, go. We can now start. <laughs> I have no idea what we're talking about now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You know, hey, no. You've you've had an awesome set of blogs, and I read them all the time. And you've got you did something that was interesting. You put a thousand of your blog posts into Notepad AI. And we now have a virtual James. So should I just talk to them? Should I talk to you? What's going on? What are the results so far? You, you know, here, here, it's a really interesting thing, um, which is to kind of make a virtual version of yourself and talk to it. And, and it makes you really see what is the difference between an AI and a human. So, so AI is obviously going to take a lot of jobs in many industries. Like you don't need journalists anymore. Because unless there's real investigative journalism, which doesn't really happen anymore, an AI could just summarize news events and report it with more knowledge than any human journalist yeah. can do. Yeah. So when you're just kind of like reworking events or language or summarizing things, which is what a lot of even chat GPT is, okay, AI is going to be much better than humans. But the one thing humans will always do better than AI is we can have an interesting life. We can have unique interesting experiences and do things and then write about them. So, so whenever you ex expand the frontier of your life or, or an industry or a category, that's where AI, AI could summarize it, but AI can't do it. So like an AI isn't going to come up with the idea, hmm, maybe I could run for president of the United States. Like an AI is just not going to think like that. But you know, uh, uh, a few months ago, I went to FEC.gov, the Federal Elections Commission website, and it took me about 10 minutes 
And I signed up to run for president in 2024. Like I'm an official candidate for president in 2024. <laughs> and then I could write about it and, 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 and write about the experience of doing that. And that's like living an interesting life and just trying interesting experiments is, is not a commodity. It's something that humans can uniquely do in this world. And, and that's where you, where we can compete with AI now. Oh, I'll show you. We should get the tens of thousands of you watching. 2024. I'll have to climb myself in Georgia. Call to, call to action for Disrupt TV watchers, viewers. Uh, vote and, for James. And, and here's the thing. That's what once you do things like that, like once you plant the seeds of interesting experiences, like I didn't make that sign. I suddenly saw that sign for sale on Amazon. And so I bought it. Like I bought this sign from somebody that I didn't know had already made it, including like T-shirts and all this other stuff. So, yeah. So when you start so, doing interesting things, interesting things happen. I, uh, so somewhere I'll be registering myself in Forsyth or uh, Cherokee County to hang out with you. <laughs> That's hilarious. You talk about or, this. or you should run for president. All the listeners should run for president. Why not? I I, I saw I saw a very powerful TEDx talk, a recent TEDx talk from you, and 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 I and I, and I mentioned uh, you know successful founder of a company and and uh, and a period in life which must have been difficult. I don't know anyone else that. Uh, you know, from 50 million to 143. And you talked about it, you can be, it can be depressing. Uh, and, oh, and, when, yeah. and, and, and you can stop being creative and you can stop generating ideas. And so you said that you really have to exercise your idea muscle because your creativity and muscle will go through atrophy if you stop generating ideas, which is often something that happens if you're, if you're upset or depressed about something. So yeah. you suggested generating 10 ideas. You suggested 100 experiments. Um, you mentioned uh, running for president uh, in, in the TEDx talk, which I highly recommend all our viewers watch. So you said do things that do not do things that you hate at the expense of things that you love. And uh, I just saw on your Twitter feed, you're considering <laughs> uh, running a bookstore for a month in London. And yeah. you said, I get to pick all the books. I get to set up chess boards outside the bookstore. And, <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I, is this one of your 100 experiments? And what do you hope to get out of that? What do you hope to running a bookstore in London for a month? Which I think is pretty awesome. Sure. But I, you know. <laughs> and, and look, when you do an experiment, the reason why it's an experiment is because you don't know the outcome, right? right. The outcome is, is, that's why you're doing the experiment, to learn. And, and I think that's a more effective way of learning than the traditional 10,000 hour rule of, you know, repeat, study, repeat, study. Uh, not that that's ineffective, but through experimentation, you learn more about yourself. You, you expand the frontier of knowledge that, that people know. So, and again, having interesting, you don't, you don't need money. You, 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 having interesting experiment, interesting experiences and doing experiments on your life is a way to plant seeds some of them will grow, some of them won't. So some guy reached, because I had mentioned on a podcast earlier that, oh, this would be a dream of mine to like run a bookstore. I just don't want to do it forever. Someone who owns a bookstore in London, it's near the campus of the London School of Economics. Uh, oh, so it's wow. in the center of London. Let's and see it right there. Someone, someone reached out to me, Arthur Kay, and said, hey, you're welcome to run my bookstore for a month. In September, I'm going to go there. 
And he said, he'll take out all the books in the bookstore and I could put in any books I want and, and run a bookstore for a month. And I think at first I was thinking, well, why would I do that? But then I was thinking, why not do it? And so I'm going to do it. And I have, you know, hopefully people, you know, I tweeted it out. Should I do this? And a lot of people said they would come visit. And, you know, so I have no idea what's going to happen or, or why I should do this, but it seems like an interesting thing. Now, you know, again, even if you you are you do have limitations, people could still, you know, that might not be the right experiment for someone, but other experiments are. Like, for instance, me getting back into chess is an experiment, yeah. is the type of experiment anyone could do. Whatever you loved as a child, you could figure out, well, what how does that how did that grow with me as I'm older? How can I get involved in that now? Oh, you can't play professional baseball if you're 50 years old, but maybe you could um, you know get involved in fantasy sports or, or writing about it or even betting on it or whatever. There's sure. so many different ways to explore any interest you're, and even monetize any interest that you're, you're fascinated by. I hope to take a couple of the 20 books that you have, so 40, 50, 60 copies of your books and bring it into the bookstore. I have a follow-up question, Ray, before you go. When I thought about bookstore in London, I thought about Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. So if you, and you said people, I saw thousands of people uh, engaged in your tweet. Who, who would you hope? Who would be the person you would look most forward to? Who's the Julia Roberts that walks into your bookstore in that month? Uh, is there someone that you would love to meet? Uh, uh, you know, an entrepreneur, a founder, uh, an actor, actress, whomever. <laughs> yeah, well, again, uh, because I've been so uh, playing even hosting chess tournaments in my house probably magnus carlson would be great to walk in wow um, but uh you know i don't know i'm interested in i'm always interested in meeting everybody i used to b before i started my first business i worked for hbo the television company and i built their website this was like in the mid 90s and i built their very first website and i said to them just like you do these fascinating original tv shows let me do an original web show and they said go for it and so I did this web show, which we also shot as a pilot for TV, uh, called 3 a.m. What's going on in New York City at 3 in the morning on a Tuesday night? Like, if you guys were out at 3 in the morning on a Tuesday night, something wrong is happening. Right? And, and, and I did this for like two and a half years and interviewed, you know, thousands of people doing that. Like, everybody's got a story. Every single person has a story. Every single person has a book in them. Everybody's got a story. Everyone has bad stuff and good stuff and i met a lot of the bad at three in the morning but you also you, you also realize there's there's other ways to live your life than the straight linear path and that's yeah. kind of the first time i encountered that like all these people were living like a different type of life and you know you, you again that was an experiment and it was an experiment that actually allowed me to create my first company i had no business knowledge at all but then i started doing this website and other entertainment companies approached me and said, hey, can you do our website? So I would work all day at HBO. And then at night, I would make like MTV's website or, or AmericanExpress.com or wow. TimeWarner.com or whatever. Like I made websites for a dozen record labels, all, all gangster rap record labels for some reason. But I became <laughs> the guy for gangster rap record labels. 
the Wu Tang Clan, oh, like I was doing their website. Oh wow, this is unbelievable nuggets of wisdom. I didn't know. I didn't know that about you. That's yeah, awesome. Jizza oh. and I played chess uh, like a month or two before uh, the the pandemic. We were we hung out and played chess because he because they were really into wow. you know they had an album, The Mystery of Chess Boxing. That's awesome. That's awesome. All I, all I remember was it smells like balls in there. That's some kind of like episode you had on 3 a.m. <laughs> I think that's where Samantha ends up getting a client. I, I don't remember. It's something like that. It was, <laughs> that was an awesome series. That. Yeah. That was an awesome series. Well, hey, you know, I, I was just looking at this, right? And you, you've got this pin tweet, right? It says, I'm not the best father, but so, and, and you're basically trying to talk about something around risk. Right. When do we take risk? Right. Do you do it now? Do you wait? What do you do? I mean, like, I mean, people people are scared. Right. People are worried about things. Yeah. Right. Do you, do you take risk? Do you not take risk? How, how do you determine when that happens? So. You know, it, risk is really interesting because let's take entrepreneurship or, or the stock market. OK. Everybody knows that there's wealth to be created, whether it's the stock market or entrepreneurship or other activities. And. So, so that's a no-brainer. One percent of the decision to get involved in entrepreneurship or investing or whatever is I can make wealth, and and I and and the ideas are easy. Also, it's not terribly difficult to come up with an idea for entrepreneurship, but then actually, the other ninety-nine percent of of the work, as you guys know, is de-risking the entire thing. Okay, yeah. do I start with with no customers and I try to raise money? Or maybe I stay at my full-time job and get customers first, which is how, which was my method when I first started. Like I didn't leave my full-time job for a year and a half after I started my first business because I wanted to make sure I had customers and money, or else I would have gone broke instantly. And oh, yeah. uh, turns out I did go broke anyway after selling my business, <laughs> but that's another story. But uh, you know, everything is about de-risking. When you make an investment, you know, I found for myself when I do private investing. If I just do it by myself, I think, oh, I'm not going to let anyone else into this because I'm going to get all the equity. I'll, those are instant failures. But if I see like, oh, uh, Ray and Vala have also invested in this deal. Yeah, I'll, I, I, I don't even have to know about it. I'll just know, OK, they've done their due diligence. I know they work hard at it. I'll, I'll piggyback. That's how I've de-risked is by having people smarter than me in the investment. So there's always methods to de-risk everything you do. And that's how you really create success. But you don't de-risk to the point where you don't do it. That's the ultimate de-risking is you don't just don't do it. But okay, what is the downside? And how can I how can I get rid of that downside as much as possible? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you write extensively about this. And part of it is achieving mastery to ensure you make informed decisions. You've written about and talked about the 525 rule. Uh, yeah. A technique of achieving mastery. Can you tell us just quickly what what, yeah. what is that? Yeah. So this this was attributed to to Warren Buffett. I I don't think he actually said it, so I don't know who originally said it, but it's always attributed to him. But uh, basically, you list the twenty five things in life you want you're most passionate about. And okay, assume family and relationships and things like that are you don't have to put on the list. That's a given. Sure. But then the next twenty five things, like maybe you want to get better at uh you know golf or maybe you want to get better at investing or maybe you want to get better at ping pong or or or, or archery i don't know and you write these 25 or or writing maybe writing you want to write a novel writing something you're passionate about or stand-up comedy you want to go on stage and be a stand-up comic so you write all these things down 
And then you divide that list in two. One, you, you take the first five and you put it over here and you take the next 20 and you put it to the right. Then you crumple up that piece of paper with the 20, you throw it away and you never look at those 20 things again. Because wow. every time you look at one of those bottom 20 of the 25, you're still passionate about those things. You still want to learn how to beatbox or breakdance or whatever it is on that list. But every time you look at any of those things, it'll take away from the five, the top five that you really want to master. And that's that's really critical that you have to focus a lot of a lot of effort on the, the things you want to get a master because, you know, you're competing against the other 200 million people in the world who also want to master those things. And by master, I mean being in the top 1% in the world, not in the top 10 in the world, but in the top 1%. So, you know, you re there's so many nuances and so many subtleties to master something. No, like, like whether it's investing or, or poker or whatever, you, it, it takes time and focus. And I have, I have another technique I called plus minus equal where, okay, now you find your top five and you figure out something you want to, let's say it's investing or, or, or chess or whatever. You find a, a plus, which is a coach to teach you, someone who's one of the best in the world maybe who to teach you. You find equals, like people who are about your level, who you could exchange notes with and, and share ideas with. And then you find a minus, someone you can coach as you're learning because you know you, you don't truly understand something unless you can explain it in simple ways. And so that helps you understand is by coaching also and, and teaching. And so awesome. the, the, you know, I found this to be very, and the guy who told me this plus minus equal technique is Frank Shamrock, who was like throughout the oh. late nineties, early O's was the best MMA champion in the world. And he always had to learn new martial yeah. arts. And this was his technique for always learning new martial arts. That's awesome. Uh, yours is uh, top five writing, investing, chess, entrepreneurship, and teaching. I'm going to focus on the investing part because you've been investing for 30 plus years. If, if I'm not mistaken, Jim Cramer uh, got you started in hedge fund and, and trading in 1990 or around that time frame. So I have a couple of questions. One, uh, in 2013, you were, I don't think you were a fan of Bitcoin, but in 2017, I think you pivoted and you thought that it may be something well, worth looking into. 2013, um, someone, I used to hold these Q&A sessions on Twitter. Yeah. every thursday and someone asked me in march 2013 what do you think of bitcoin and i said it's probably a scam or a fraud yeah. so then um you know naval ravikant awesome. saw that tweet yeah and, yeah. and brilliant, he, brilliant. He's he brilliant. was coming to new york and he said let's get together and i will explain bitcoin to you yeah. this was in may 2013 Unbelievable. April. Unbelievable. and we went like for a whole afternoon he had a whiteboard he explained everything he could about bitcoin and you know that was my plus yeah. He was like my coach for learning about Bitcoin yeah. back then. And, uh, you know, I I quickly yeah. was a convert. I actually built a Bitcoin-only store yeah. To, yeah. to sell a book in my book, Choose Yourself. I sold yeah. it at Bitcoin-only a month before I released it on Amazon. I'm and, uh, you know, I was I was selling a PDF for one-tenth of a Bitcoin. Bitcoin <laughs> was $61 at the time. So people were basically paying me two thousand. What's the equivalent of two thousand dollars for a PDF of that book? Unbelievable! And it was well worth it to them. Yeah, well, it's going to oh, You know, I got my fingers crossed. It'll, it'll cross twenty k. Given last year's horrific <laughs> year for crypto, yeah. I mean, a dozen like implosions, and you know, uh, and we won't go through them. So the fact that it could actually bounce back to twenty is amazing. So two, 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 I guess my questions. Something kind and interesting about Jim Cramer, since he got you in the into trading, uh, from my understanding, and well, then and then 
he got me into writing about uh, finance, actually. So what happened was, and this was when I started writing these 10 ideas a day to kind of get out of this massive depression I was in, I would send ideas to other people. So I sent, I just cold emailed Jim Cramer and I said, this is 2002, I said, here's 10 ideas about investing. I would love to read if you wrote it. And I said, you don't even need to reply to me. And he wrote back and he said, why don't you write about these things? And it was the first time I ever professionally wrote, and I've been writing professionally ever since for 21 years. Um, and you know, I wrote for the Street.com, then the Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. But he got me started, and I was—I wrote ideas for him for his Mad Money show when it was first starting. That's and uh, uh, and then I also was getting at the same time in parallel, I had ideas for hedge fund managers who would say the same thing: Why don't you invest this way, and we'll give you the money? So. <laughs> Uh, so that awesome. technique is a powerful technique of both giving and receiving. I love that. And your, and your thoughts on crypto, where do you see Bitcoin a year from now? You know, it's an interesting thing because of course there's speculation, yeah. Bitcoin having is coming up and you know, that usually signals a big move up, but Ethereum, uh, has had a lot of great things happen. Yeah. I won't, I won't get into the technical details, but let's just ask this. If you want to. If you want to wire money, like Ray, you want to wire money to Vala, okay, the money, you go to your bank, and by the way, you could only go to your bank between, I don't know, 9 p.m. and 4 p.m. Yeah, Monday right, through right. Friday. It's, right. like a, it's like something, an in, in antique from 100 years ago, the banking system. And then you say, I'm going to wire this money. The money leaves your account, and they say, give it two to three business days. Where is the money for two or three? Where it's is like it? In, it's like, it's like in, in the clouds or something. Like, it's invisible. And maybe it gets there in three days. I actually just had a wire take six business days to complete. Like they made a mistake in the back office. But but with crypto, you could do it 24-7. It takes in a second to move crypto from one wallet to the other. It takes less than a second. It's 24-7. So this is the first this is problem number one that crypto solves. It completely solves the entire financial system and it makes it modern. And then you could start trading things. Uh, with crypto. That's another problem it solves. If I want to buy McDonald's stock now, again, on holidays, I can't. On Saturdays and Sundays, I can't. I got to wait for the New York Stock Exchange to open 9 p.m., closes at 4.30 or 9.30 to, to 4. And it's limited. But crypto, that doesn't happen. And that's just the beginning of the use cases. I mean, there's there's a million use cases. That's just the beginning, which no one has figured to solve. And then there's all, all sorts of other issues. with. And by the way, that's with no fees. You don't yeah. have to pay a wiring fee. You don't have to. It just goes from wallet to wallet. So these are like basic problems that are trillion dollar industries. And that doesn't even touch. It's the beginning of the iceberg of what crypto could be used for. So eventually Bitcoin yeah. and I think actually even more Ethereum and uh, a lot of the picks and shovels cryptocurrencies that are literally building the ecosystem have to go up as this happens. By the way, it's similar to the Internet. In 2001, 2002, I had a, a VC firm, one of my partners was a, a banker. And I remember, you know, the, the internet bust was happening and I had a Defender arcade machine in my office and he was playing <laughs> Defender and he had a bad game and he, he hit the screen so hard it broke. And and he just yelled, the internet's a goddamn fat, you know, fad. And he walked out <laughs> and I never saw him again. <laughs> and it wasn't until like 2005 that People finally, I think most people realize, oh, this is here to stay. And then there's Twitter, Facebook, yeah. e-commerce. And what happened in 2005? There were a billion users around the world. Crypto is still a few years away from that. And then I think we'll start to see a lot more. You know, crypto is not 
crypto is not friendly right now. Yeah. Like my grandma no. is not going to buy crypto. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. she's going to she's going to use pancake swap and buy MetaMask. MetaMask. She's going to figure out which wallet to use. Staking. Like, yeah, no yeah. way. Somebody. <laughs> but this is like a business opportunity. Someone needs to build a front end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To, yes. to, like like Red Hat was to Linux. Someone needs to build yes. a front end to crypto or 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 look. Mosaic, the one of the first internet browsers yeah, back great. in 1993, yeah, yeah. created by a young student named Mark Andreessen. Yeah. So that was that made the internet user friendly, and someone needs to to do that with crypto. Definitely. I can't believe you have Naval Ravikant teaching you stuff. Like, how lucky are you? <laughs> but that's just it. When you here's what happened was uh, uh, Kamal Ravikant wrote me once. He had been reading some of my blogs. And we went back and forth and I gave him a bunch of ideas. And he's like, oh, look, this guy gave me all these ideas. And then just you plant these seeds awesome. and you don't know what's going to grow. Awesome. And then, look, how did I meet you guys? I had a podcast and Ray had a book and Ray came on. We had a great conversation. Awesome. Like just things happen. And, and by the way, I'm a really bad networker. And yet if you do lots of things, <laughs> lots of things happen. Yeah. Awesome. We're here with James Altucher, founder at the James Altucher Show podcast. And of course, you can follow him at J-A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R. And more importantly, you can pre-order his new book that's coming out. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the book before we drop you. So, Well, well actually, that, I think you might be referring to one that, that has come out already, which is Skip the Line, yes. which is where I talk about a lot of these ideas on how to... Um, learn. Oh, I thought you were writing a new book after Skip the Line. Sorry about that. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I, I am which is my journey into, into, you know, adult improvement, like how to, how to succeed yep, at yep. something, even in, you know, if you're 50 years old, 55 years old, whatever it is, because it's hard, it's different. The brain's different and the brain is different and you have responsibilities and mortgages and kids and, you know, spouses, it's hard to get good at something after a certain point. And, but I'm trying to show people that it's possible because look, there's, there's the pandemic. A lot of people did early retirement. A lot of people have been laid off in this, you know, beginnings of this recession, maybe. And they want to pursue and maybe even monetize their, the things they love doing. And I, I think it's po more possible than people would suggest. Important topic. Thank you so much. Important topic. Thank you so much for being on the show. And happy Friday. So, yeah, thank you, you guys. Hold up for a minute. And I know to be on Bookstore in September in London. So, yeah, yeah, come and visit. <laughs> I'm leaving great. my house for the first time. That's amazing. We'll do a podcast live in London. That would be awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Thank, thank you, guys. You. I appreciate Cheers. it. Thank, thank you. He's awesome. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Talk about expanding your mind. By the way, we only bring like awesome people that are super smart and write great books. And with no exception, that's our next guest, Mauro Parsini, chief design officer, the first chief design officer at PepsiCo and author of The Human Side of Innovation. Mauro is PepsiCo's first chief design officer. He joined the Food and Beverage Corporation in 2012. And in his role, he's infusing design thinking into PepsiCo's culture and leading new approach to innovation by designing that impacts the company's products and platforms and all the brands under PepsiCo, dozens of brands. Mauro's focus extends from the physical to virtual expression of the brand, including product packaging, events, advertising, fashion, art. As he said before the show started, it's about love, designing love in what you do. And we're going to talk about Unicode employees that help us do that. Mauro is the host of his own successful podcast, In Your Shoes, with Mauro Porcini on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, where he interviews inspiring personalities and creative communities worldwide. His latest book, 
the human side of innovation, the power of people in love with people. Those are the unicorns, people who are in love with people. The book focuses on innovation, design, and leadership. Prior to joining PepsiCo, Omar did exactly the same brilliant award-winning work, but he did it as a chief design officer at 3M. You can follow him on Twitter. Uh, he must be an early adopter. He got his name and last name. Mauro Porcini, M-A-U-R-O-P-O-R-C-I-N-I. Welcome, Mauro, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me. I'm more active in Instagram and LinkedIn than Twitter. Being okay. a designer, I love the, the platforms that give me the possibility to show pictures. And by the way, I'm not by myself, as you can see, so I can introduce her right away. This is Bella. Hi, Bella. Bella. And there is also Leone. Oh, wow. that's awesome. We don't, have any, we don't have any questions for them prepared, but maybe as we go, we'll come up with something. Well, Moro, you know, this is awesome. In your book, you discuss how innovation needs to come from a place of love for others. What does this mean? And what are the consequences if you design selfishly? <laughs> well, it... This is the real meaning of innovation. This is how everything started. If you think about the first act of innovation at the beginning of time, when the a prehistoric man or woman decided to modify what was available in nature, they took a stone, a piece of stone, and uh, scratching one stone with the other, they started to modify the stone to create a tool. The tool at the beginning was something that they used to hunt, then to prepare their food, later on to decorate their body, uh, to celebrate their gods. Uh, essentially, they decided to modify what was available to them to fulfill specific needs, wants, desires that they had personally and that the people around them, the people close to them had. By definition, it was an act of love towards themselves and the people close to them. And after a while, they started to create so many objects, so many products that they, they couldn't do it by themselves anymore. So they asked people in other communities to do a little bit of that for them. I'm going to produce something, I'm going to create something, you produce something else, then we exchange these goods. Yep. Yep. Then, you know, everything started to grow. And over the centuries and thousands of years, we started to create uh, the idea of jobs, companies, brands, and we started to lose that idea of love or really caring for yourself or the people close to you and creating something that is really useful and extraordinary, something that you really want and need and desire for them. We started to change love, exchange love with profit. We're making money. And, you know, in the name of profit, eventually you will create products and services and brands and solutions they are not extraordinary. They are good enough for the people that you serve. And for many, many years in the past century, we have been creating products, brands, companies on the base of this. You know, and, and if there was the good dynamic, a good dynamic balance in your industry between your product and your competitor, and 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 people were buying those products, you're building big barrier to entry in your industry or for your company. Mediocre products, products that were average, products that were not extraordinary, were succeeding in market. Today, where these barriers to entry are going down under the winds of globalizations, new technologies, uh, uh, the world of social media we live in, a new access for people uh, to any kind of good and product through the world of e-commerce, in this new world, 
you cannot protect the mediocrity anymore. You need to create something extraordinary for people or somebody else finally will do it on your behalf. There are not those barriers to entry anymore that you used to have in your industry or for your company. So long story short, big companies and small companies, they have just one option left. They need to focus on people once again. And they need to really care about them, really focus on their needs, their wants, their dreams, and create something extraordinary for them. Is the product, is the service, is communication, is packaging, is any dimension of your product. You may have something that is really good, a product that is really good, a brand that is really iconic, but it's not sustainable enough, it's not purposeful enough. Mm. That's exactly where competition will come in. This is why you need the culture of love. You need to remember where everything started and you need to go back to the origin and really be driven by the kind of care for people. That's a real first principle here. It really is. It really, and PepsiCo is a super innovative company. I've had the privilege of collaborating with PepsiCo executives in the past. I had the privilege of being invited to leadership offsite PepsiCo events where disruptive thinkers would come and talk about things that would challenge dominant logic about, for example, putting people in love ahead of profit and stakeholder capitalism and this, that, and the other. And so PepsiCo has an amazing, deliberate culture of innovation. How do you, Mauro, how do you keep that culture of innovation? What, how do you cultivate that as a gardener? What, how do you feed it? How do you give it enough light? How do you give it enough space to grow? And maybe you can answer that with talking about unicorn employees as a key role in terms of creating that culture. Yeah. First of all, you need to prove the value of this culture. You know, if I think about the chronology of this story, the history of this new culture of innovation, human-centered innovation inside the company, there are five different phases that... Um, this culture went through, and these are phases that are universal. They apply to any culture, any kind of organization and company. The first one is what I call the denial. When the company thinks, well, I don't really need this new approach to whatever you're doing. It could be an innovation culture, but again, it could be anything else. And then most of the time, companies go through this phase. Something happened. You're blockbuster. You're like, well, the world is not really changing. You know, these digital services are not going to resonate too much. Or you're caught like, well, this digital photography, low quality. You know, you, we are all in denial because we love to protect the status quo. The status quo is safe, is reliable, is comfortable. But again, things change in the world. We need to go over the denial. And usually there is, in this kind of company, somebody at the top. It could be the CEO. Ideally, often it's the CEO, but it could be somebody anywhere at the top of the company, somebody with enough power and resources to drive the change. They realize that there is the need of a change. And so uh, I remember even before PepsiCo, in the case of 3M, uh, they decided to, the design was somehow important for the company, and they decided to hire, in the case, with a very safe bet, a young kid, <laughs> I was 27, out of Milan, the periphery of the American empire, uh, to run design <laughs> for the consumer business, one of the six businesses of the company just in Europe. It was a prototype. It was, it was an experiment. It was a very safe one because if this kid was failing, nobody would have realized. Uh, the case of PepsiCo was different. It was more visible. It was, you know, at the top of the company and, and with more uh, communication about this. But again, somebody at the top decides to take a bet. And 
let's take the 3M example because it helps me taking it really to life. Here they are, they hire this young guy from Italy and this young guy takes his suitcases and goes to St. Paul, Minnesota and he starts to meet all these executives from the company in R&D, in marketing, in different functions of the organization. And remember pitching this idea of design, human-centered innovation and everybody loves it. I mean, I was getting oh, a lot yeah. of traction right away. Yes, yeah. So I remember going to the EVP of the consumer business that was my sponsor, the guy that introduced this notion of design in the company. His name is Monozari, Dr. Monozari, we were all calling him. And I, I remember going to his office and telling him, Dr. Nozari is fantastic. Everybody is understanding this idea of design and they're embracing it and they love it. And, and Dr. Nozari, there was always a very serious man that day uh, was looking at me in a more, even more serious way. And in the, with a serious face, he told me, Mauro, they are all lying to you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, they are not, you know. Dr. Nozari, <laughs> I, was, I was in the room, you were not, you know, and I was thinking, I have such an eye EQ and empathy. I feel people, no, 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 they are with me. And Dr. Nozari keeps looking at me and he goes on again and he's like, no, they're telling you. I'm telling you that they're all lying to you. And then he goes on with, a, with an analogy or a metaphor, depending on the interpretation, to explain what he meant. He told me, imagine you are in an art gallery and you have a beautiful painting in front of you that you really, really, really love. And you have your pockets full of money. What do you do? You buy the painting, I guess. Well, Mauro, you and design in general, you are one of the paintings in the 3M art gallery. But there are many other oh, paintings. Wow. There is the... Uh, HR project painting, there is the new manufacturing plant painting. All the people in my teams are buying other paintings. They're not buying you. What he meant for me, you know, it was a big aha moment. It literally changed my life and the trajectory of design in 3M and then later on in PepsiCo because it was a big learning for me. Essentially, these people were investing money in the next HR project, the next R&D project, not in design. And I realized that often when you engage with people, you pitch a new idea, many, the most of the time, people are not comfortable pushing back on you for mm. multiple reasons, maybe because they like you. They like this kid with a lot of passion and no, moving no. You know, his body you know, <laughs> in an Italian way. And, and so they didn't want to disappoint me. Or maybe they were you know, concerned about the sponsor that was behind me. They didn't want to, you know, go against Dr. Monozari. Or maybe they were sending weak signals about the fact that we're not really on board, but I couldn't read them for a simple reason. We love to think that we're loved. We don't like to think that people don't like us. So long story short, I realized that I needed to do something every time I was pitching for an idea. I needed to ask what I call today a sacrifice, a commitment, usually that translates in asking for money. You believe in what I'm saying? Okay, invest in it. Give me the money. Give me resources. Give me people. And yeah. if you do that, the most of the time, people will drop out. Nine times out of ten is, is not a number I'm throwing. It's statistically nine out of ten people drop off. And you need 
that. It's fantastic. So you can find that one people or that 10% of the organization that is willing to try new things with you. I call this second phase the hidden rejection. And usually is what kills <laughs> innovation and new approaches and new ways of working in these companies. Because people think they're getting traction and for months they go on thinking that they're getting the traction. And when they realize that they don't, it's too late. The company is not patient. They're like, okay, enough. Now we try something different. So anyway, I'll try to be short. But you move from hidden innovation to what I call the occasional leap of faith when you find inside the organization that 10% of people, they are the co-conspirators. With them, you build proof points as fast as possible. They don't need to be perfect. They just need to show incremental value, some form of value of the new culture. The more proof point, the more people will come to you and will be like, oh, I love what you did in Pepsi. Let's do it in, in Lays. I will ask for money. The people that will give me the money <laughs> will do more proof points. Once you have a critical mass of proof points, you move to the fourth phase, is what I call... Uh, the quest for confidence is the scale-up thing. Mm. When you move from incubation of a new approach to something that makes sense at scale, you need processes, you need frameworks, you need ways of working, you need to scale it up. And so yes. the risk is that all of this kills the love, the entrepreneurship, the innovation that you had at the beginning. You need to protect that in this phase. If you do, then you scale it up and you move to the fifth phase that is what I call the holistic awareness. One common theme, and is what you mentioned when you asked me the question, of all of these, is the people driving all of these. You need people with a specific set of characteristics. I call them the unicorns, the people in love with people. They are the one that make the difference. I'm going to pause here, else I'm going to talk for the next 20 minutes. But no. <laughs> I, don't know no, how, I, don't, I don't know how anyone can say no to you because... <laughs> The passion and the charisma and the love in your answers, uh, you got, you know, I'll, I'll be one of those early investors, but it's so important. The fact that you, that you invite people that have skin in the game, they are actually investing in money, in resources, in social capital in terms of being allies and sponsors. So getting doctors and EVPs and others to be on board uh, is, 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 is key. Uh, tremendous tremendous wisdom in what you said. Go ahead, Ray. You know, there's so many places we can touch upon in the book. Um, I think uh, one of the other areas that really caught our eye was really the conversation around mentors, right? And how mentors play a fundamental role in the life of a unicorn. Share with us, like, what what is the qualities of a mentor we should be looking for? Well, look, I profoundly believe in the power of mentors. I never had a mentor in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on a minute. You're giving advice <laughs> about mentors and you haven't had a mentor. No, this is why and he's this giving is, advice. This I, is why I, he's I, telling I, yeah. I get it. So I didn't have a traditional kind of mentor. But I had many people that have no clue that have been mentors for me, or unless I told them years later, that have been really playing their role. And so in the book, I talk about three different kind of unusual mentorships. Uh, one is what I call the ideal meta-mentor. Uh, meta-mentor, yes. So is the ideal meta-mentor. And what it means is this. If you think about these people in love with people, these extraordinary innovators I talk about in the book, they have 23 different characteristics mm -hmm. from the ability to 
think big and dream all the way to the ability to make things happen and execute, all the way to uh, characteristics that you often don't talk about in the world of business and corporations, like the power of kindness, the power of respect, the power of optimism or curiosity. So there are many different characteristics. Now, to have all of them to the extreme is impossible. Indeed, the unicorns do not exist. They live, Plato <laughs> would say, they live in the world of ideas. And so what we need to do is to have clarity about those 23 characteristics and invest every day of our life to get better in all of them. Now, if these unicorns do not exist, essentially is a tension that you have for bettering yourself in these 23 dimensions, it's impossible to find a mentor that has all of them, right? If you really want to work in all those dimensions. But there is a very high probability that in your life, you have a person that is, for instance, extremely, extremely kind. Maybe you know another person that is really, really optimistic. And then you know another person that is the most curious person you know. You know another one that is a big dreamer, another one that is so good at executing things, and so on and so forth. So you may find there is a high probability that in your life you have at least one person that embodies at least one of those characteristics wow. to the extreme. So the meta mentor for me, but by the way, it, it really is. I really use it in this way over the years. When I need to be optimistic because there is a very difficult moment in my life and things are not going in the right direction. I think of the most op optimistic friend or colleague that I have. I bet I, it, it could be enough already to think about the person and think how the person will behave in that moment. Even that is already of help because there is a high probability that I will behave in a different way than you. And so that, that is a reminder of how you should behave and it helps already. Or eventually you can talk to them. You call them, you look, I mean, this difficult moment, they don't need to know that they are your mentor, that are helping you with that thing. You elected them to be mentor. Now, if you do that with the kindest person, with all the different characteristics, and in the moment you think how that person will behave in this specific situation, this is, you build your meta-mentor. You build your unicorn mentoring you uh, in this way. This is one. Another one I talk about in the book is um, uh, this idea of mentor far away from you. Uh, and I talk about a specific story of uh, this guy. His name is Stefano Marzano. He was the head of design of Philips. And for us designers studying design back then in the 90s, it was like a myth. He was like, you know, an amazing um, personality. He was doing great things in Philips. And you will study about him at school. So uh, for the circumstances of life, I, I met him when I was 19. Uh, essentially. And, and this is the, uh, this is Stefano Marzano, right? Yes, yeah, Stefano Marzano. I, in the book, I tell the story. I was in this bus um, in the city center of Arese, the town where I come from. And. And this friend of mine calls me. A few months earlier, I told she 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 was from high school. She was studying in high school with me. And a few months earlier, I told her that I I I love this this individual, this person. He was such an icon for me. And she told me that she knew him. He was a friend of her father. And so she she told me next time he's in Barese, he lives he, he used to live in in Holland, in the Netherlands, where Philips was. And next time he's in Barese, I will. 
I will call you and will introduce you to him. So Excellent. here we are a few months later. I am there in the bus. I have my Motorola phone and I received this call from her telling me that <laughs> Stefano Marzano is there. Now, in the book, I, I tell the story of how I felt. On one side, I was like, wow, excited and everything. But on the other side, I was totally out of my comfort zone. I was like, what do I tell this guy? I just started to study design. I know nothing about design. I was a kid. I was 19. I would go to the house of these adults, you know, the, the parents of Valentina, my friend, with this wow. guy. So and I'm mentioning this because many times it happened in our lives that we get opportunity, opportunities but we, because those opportunities requires for you to get out of your comfort zone, we let them go. With a series of alibi or excuses that we tell ourselves, we're not telling ourselves, well, I'm letting go an opportunity. We just have reasons for not doing things, reason for not getting out of your home, not meeting people, not meeting strangers. <laughs> it was, was pretty strong that day. I was playing soccer semi-pro. I was paid for doing that. And training was like... A job. So you yeah. don't wake up in the morning, you need to go to work, and you're like, oh, there is Stefano Marzano, I'm not going to work, right? So for me, training was like this. I was going to training that afternoon, and they couldn't miss it. But, you know, there was this instinct that I needed to go, the, those butterflies in the stomach, and they went. And they went, and they don't remember anything of the conversation I had with him that day. Zero, zero is a blur. It's zero? Many, oh my God. Many years ago, I was 19, I'm 47 now, so you can imagine. But I remember the feeling, and feelings change your life, right? I remember yes. being so excited by the excitement of this guy. You know, it was like, it, it, it was somebody that wanted to change the world, and you couldn't feel it, and you, you could really touch it. And until then, I knew Stefano Marzano as the icon of design that was doing great things in the design world. That day, I felt the how he was doing that. The passion, the drive, the optimism, the curiosity, all of these things. I, did, I couldn't phrase them, but I felt them. So after that, I was fresh off studying, you know, universe, um, uh, philosophy at school. And, 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 and so I, and you, if you study philosophy, you study all this exchange between the masters and the uh, alumni and the people following them. And, and a lot of the philosophy for the ancient times is through the exchange, the letters that they would write each other. So yes. I, internet didn't really exist as it exists today. So I decided to take paper and pen and write him letters. So I wrote him a couple of letters, never about how design can change the world and these things, thinking, you know, we could be, you know, like the philosopher, obviously never answered to my letter. <laughs> but, he did some, and, and, but he did something that really changed my life. He decided to one day to take a couple of books that he was publishing with Philips and send them to me. And these books, he had them in English, but he had them also in Italian. When I met them that day, one of the things that I remember telling him is that I didn't speak English. He told me, I told him, you know, in the future, I would love to work in Philips with you. It would be amazing for me. And he told me, well, do you speak English? And I didn't. I studied French at school. At 19, I spoke zero English. And he told me, well, you need to learn English if you want to ever work in Philips or any other big corporation. But back then, you didn't need to learn the English language in Italy to have a wonderful career in the world of design. My parents never traveled outside of Italy ever in their life. So I did. I 
didn't have that kind of need. Long story short, he sent me these books two years later, after the meeting, two years later, with uh, something that he wrote on the first page of one of the two. He wrote me, I'm sending this book to you in English. I have them in Italian, but I'm sending them in English to you because you need to learn English. That was <laughs> well, really, I mean, that was big, big. It was a little act of kindness of a person that didn't need yes. to do it. I mean, there, I, there, I couldn't give back anything. It was literally an act of kindness. And wow. a little effort changed my life. Because essentially what happened is that I, I won a scholarship to go to study uh, design for one year in Paris. I gave up the scholarship. Wow. I waited another year. I took the risk of reapplying for another scholarship. I won it again. And I went wow. to study at 23 design not english design in a, in, in dublin in a language i didn't know in that year in 1998 i had to rush learning english to do the exams in english and that's how my life literally changed wow. after that i've been following from a distance but the point in mean, the, the the idea of stefano marzano is this especially today in the world of social media where you can have access to anybody Think about people that really, really inspire you and think about, follow them, get inspired by them, follow their interviews, their podcasts, their conversations, their articles, write to them. You know, in social media, you can write to people. Maybe if you write once, they're not going to answer. Write another time, write another time again. Write things that are interesting, not just, oh, I would like to meet you, but, you know, your point of view, show your ability, your intellectual ability, your passion, your love yes. for what you do. So do that and you will, you will recruit mentors out there. They don't even know that they're your mentors. Stefano, he knows now because I've been thanking him so many times over the years, also publicly, he's in the book and everything. But back then he was my mentor without even realizing. And then for wow. all, and I will close, for, for me, for the two of you, for anybody listening to us right now that somehow reach a certain kind of position, Let's remember that a little act of kindness, maybe answering a message that we receive in social media with one sentence could change the life of people. I've been trying to, I mean, I receive thousands of messages, yeah, you know, yeah, every yeah. week. It's too much to answer to all of them. But from time to time, I try to go back, answer as much as possible, even one word, even one sentence. And yep. you have no idea how many people wrote me over the years. Thank you, because that thing that you say that they push me to change my job or do something different. And I'm sure this is happening to both of you as well with your exposure. But to all the people listening to us, something little that doesn't require so much effort right. could really mean the world for the people listening. I love that. I, we, could talk, we could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I am so inspired by your stories. And I know there are 19-year-olds around the globe or 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds that I have that same feeling you had wanting to meet you. So yes. it's, it's and, and I know, and, and I don't know you, but I suspect the reason you wrote this wonderful book is in a way for you to give back to all those other 19 year olds who don't speak multiple languages. By the way, you speak English beautifully. <laughs> who, who With really, a heavy Italian accent. <laughs> no, I love it, I love it. So thank you for, uh, talking about the human side of innovation clearly 
the way you speak is just the most uh, authentic, loving way. And PepsiCo is lucky to have you. So thank you for being on thank our show. You. You, you, you mentioned for the 19 years old, people are out there. And also for all the people, no matter your age, they feel like they are 19 years yeah. old. Yeah. And if you don't feel it yet, it's how to find back that feeling that is amazing. I love that. Bring that back. The power of people who love people. We're here with Mauro Porcini, the human side of innovation. And more importantly, go get the book on Amazon, get the audio book. And of course, you know, come listen to the show again. So we want you back. Mauro, come back. We're excited to have you. And thank you. Happy Friday. Thank, thank you, so, you much. so much. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you. Grazie. <laughs> what? we're at the end of the show again and we are blown like i mean yeah, our minds are totally blown <laughs> it's funny like we normally have three guests and we decided uh deliberately to only have two because uh we're a big fan of james uh you know with james you can talk for hours you literally can have a two three hour conversation and and Mauro is uh one of the most incredible designers in the world at, at one of the largest companies in the world. And their first is chief design. And I still don't think we had enough time. <laughs> you know, I, 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 we could have easily, easily extended the conversation with both of them for the entire hour and then some, okay. That was episode 306. Uh, before I go to episode, oh, let me just talk about episode 307. Then I want Ray for you to recap what we just learned. Uh, love, experiments, big ideas, importance of creativity. Episode 307 next week, Whitney Johnson, uh, founder, CEO of Disruption Advisors. Whitney was our first guest. We just completed our 941 interviews. So Whitney was number one. Uh, so it's amazing to have Whitney. Uh, Tina Opie, PhD, Associate Professor of Management at Babson College, award-winning teacher and researcher. Ooh. She's followed with her colleague, Beth Livingston, also PhD, Associate Professor in Management Entrepreneurship, University of Iowa's TP College of Business. Yeah. So we have, we have two extraordinary uh, big thinkers. And we have Jacob Harold, former GuideStar CEO, candidate co-founder, social impact strategist, and author of The Toolbox. Toolbox. We have, we have, and of course, Whitney Johnson is a multiple best-selling author, and she's, I believe, ranked number six on the Thinkers 50 list this year, so, or from last year. So again, uh, bring your popcorn, buckle your seatbelts, episode 307 is going to also be extraordinary. Ray, <laughs> your, um, you know, uh, GPT chat, sh short and sweet summary of this current episode. <laughs> Oh, James pretty much told us to go expand our minds and, and really take risks, try things out, figure out what you like. Experimentation is the heart of what's going on. And actually, it's a good point, right? With ChatGPT, it's really about series of experimentation. It's giving us the ability to experiment at machine scale. And it's our job to actually come back to a human scale. With Mauro Porcini, I think what was really wonderful about this is really... We, we've got to come back to what gets us excited, what makes us passionate. Uh, how do we you know, bring that um, into our lives? Um, and, and I think it's going to help. It's going to make people a lot happier uh, where they are. Um, and especially thinking about the way we think about innovation or teaching or sharing our knowledge with other people. So I think that's going to be great. And speaking about sharing knowledge, Bala, we may actually have a special episode 8 a.m., I think, is that Eastern maybe, or is that Pacific? Um, Pacific. I think it might be 11 a.m. Eastern next week, um, live from Davos, or Davos, for all those people who want us to pronounce it properly. So, yeah, yes. so, so we'll be saying as that you, as well. Yeah, as you know, uh, World Economic Forum has their annual conference. They convene at Davos, 
and Ray will be there live. Ray will be there with other senior executives who will be at Davos and luminaries and government officials. We are planning on Thursday, January 19th at 11 a.m. Eastern uh, 8, uh, Pacific to have Ray give us feet on the street uh, summary of what's happening, the Davos theme, the top priorities and points of view that will shape 2023 and beyond. So tune in, uh, Talented View right now is scheduled for uh, 19th at 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, 8 Pacific and follow Disrupt TV show for updates at Disrupt TV show, follow Ray and myself and we'll try to provide you more specifics as we get closer to the date, Thursday, 19th. Okay, if it's uh, if it's fr- Friday? if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks, everybody. And, uh, Take care. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye.